Welcome back to Adventures in Theater History and to our episode, The Quaker City, The Forbidden Play of 1844, Part 1. In the early 1840s was a city under constant threat of civil disruption. The nationwide banking panic of 1837 had led to a long economic downturn, and wages in the city were driven steadily downward for the next seven years. The artisan and working classes of the city held considerable resentment against its wealthy classes, especially those who led the financial institutions and the failing banks that had led to their impoverishment. True, some white working-class resentment was directed against the city's blacks and also against the anti-slavery society, but this resentment could also be mixed with class resentment, as many wealthy people of the city were known to support abolitionist causes. It was all part of what led to an anti-abolition mob to burn down Pennsylvania Hall in 1838. We've already covered in the podcast how this ongoing economic trouble had helped cause a constant turnover in the management of the city's theaters. Whether they were running the Chestnut Street Theater, the Art Street Theater, the National, or the Walnut Street Theater, one manager after another failed to thrive in the turbulent business climate. And we've also covered how Edwin Forrest, who distinctly identified with the common working man in America, built up a repertoire of plays like The Gladiator and Jack Cade, whose heroes rallied the masses and fought against the aristocrats and the power elites. The complete failure of Nicholas Biddle's Second Bank of the United States, Philadelphia's flagship financial institution, in early 1841 had shaken the confidence of all classes in the city. One Philadelphian wrote at the time, If a volcano had opened its fiery jaws in our midst, or an earthquake had shaken the firmest edifices to their foundations, the popular terror could not have been more complete. There were a lot of visions of calamity, in fact, wherever one looked in those days. In religious culture, a wave of Millerism swept the country as the prophecies of William Miller, leader of what would become the Seventh-day Adventist Church, predicted that the second coming of Christ would happen in October of 1843. Then he moved it to March of 1844, and then October of 1844. Finally, in what became known to many as the Great Disappointment, Miller and his followers conceded that the world had not ended after all, and Christ had not returned to earth. Sorry, spoiler alert. This did not do much good for the circulation of the local version of William Miller's newspaper, called Signs of the Times, which was regularly published in Philadelphia and had helped to whip up the eschatological anxiety and excitement. 
Other Philadelphia publications, like the sensationalist, highly popular penny paper, The Spirit of the Times, perhaps named in response to Miller's paper, Spirit of the Times mocked both the foolish followers of religious sects and the corrupt preachers and politicians that they accused of fanning the flames of fear. But it wasn't all false prophecy. Throughout the early 1840s, class, racial, and religious resentment often led to outright violence in Philadelphia's streets, along with the surging number of caricatures of African Americans in the minstrel show halls Black people were also the victims of hostile white mobs. In August of 1841, an African-American parade celebrating Jamaican Independence Day and the recent end of slavery in other British-held islands in the Caribbean along Lombard Street was assaulted by Irish-American rioters near Mother Bethel Church. Over three days of attacks, the Second African Presbyterian Church nearby, Smith's Hall, a meeting place for abolitionists, and numerous homes of black Philadelphians in the neighborhood were looted and burned. None of the white working-class attackers were ever held to account, of course, by the administration of Mayor John Moran Scott, who was a prominent member of the Whig Party and part of the upper-class leadership of the city. Three years later, Mayor Scott would also preside over the even better-known nativist riots, when competing mobs of Catholics and the Protestant-led Native American Party would roil the working-class districts of Kensington and Southwark. St. Augustine Catholic Church in Kensington was burned in May. The state militia, led by the prominent Philadelphian George Cadwallader, was called out to quell even more riots in July and then was attacked itself, defending St. Philip Neri Church. At least 15 people had been killed and dozens wounded. These riots had gained national attention and were used as an issue in the 1844 U.S. presidential election, with the Democratic Party condemning both the Whigs and the growing Native American Party especially ardent Democrats, known as Locofocos, even accused their main rival, the Whigs, of secretly supporting the anti-Catholic nativist movement. This helped the Democratic candidate, James K. Polk, in his victory, though it was a narrow election. But a few weeks earlier, in Philadelphia's October 1844 local elections, the Whig candidate, Peter McCall, was elected mayor. Under the rules of that time, the winning candidate immediately took office. So, by November 1844, McCall was in charge of maintaining public order in the city of Philadelphia during national elections and afterwards, assisted only by the small, semi-professional municipal police force. In a real emergency, he could ask for help from the Pennsylvania State Militia, controlled by Cadwallader and officers who were mostly fellow Whigs. Emotions continued to run high in the Quaker City, a name that journalists around the country used for Philadelphia, even though now few members of the Society of Friends ever sought public office anymore. The city's theaters were the next flashpoint. In fact, they were frequently the venues where extreme feelings were expressed. On November 4, 1844, an item in the Whig Standard, a party paper published in Washington, D.C., printed an article that I found about an uproar a few days previously at the Chestnut Street Theater in Philadelphia, 
Dan Rice, the reigning king of blackface comedy, had brought his highly popular Jim Crow character to the chestnut. At one point in the evening, he also brought a white raccoon onto the stage with him. Though this was a pretty unsubtle joke about the Whig candidate for president, Henry Clay, the Kentucky senator whose longtime political nickname was the Old Coon, the word was only just starting to gain traction in America as a racist epithet. And the juxtaposition of these two different usages, because remember, Rice was standing there in full blackface makeup and a ragged costume in character as an African-American stable hand from Kentucky, evidently hit home with the politically mixed audience of white Philadelphians. Wrote the reporter, quote, the loco focos groaned and the wigs shouted and huzzahed and a scene of noisy confusion followed. The coon was then withdrawn, but for some time the audience would not allow the play to proceed. The whole affair was disgraceful, for we cannot think that Mr. Rice meant any political illusion, though it must be allowed, that the introduction of the animal was rather indiscreet." Close quotes. Clearly, the spirit of incipient riot from earlier in 1844 had not yet died down in Philadelphia. Minstrel shows, as we know, dominated popular theater of the day. But we have never really discussed how elaborately produced disaster melodramas were also common on the stages of the Walnut Street Theater, the National Theater, and the Art Street Theater. Known for their scenery and spectacle, these disaster melodramas often depicted cataclysmic events like volcanoes, riots, and even sea monsters. These dramas often cast working-class characters as their heroes, and they usually ended in martyrdom. For example, uh, English playwright Joseph Jones's play, The Surgeon of Paris, depicting the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 16th century France, was played numerous times at the Walnut and other theaters during this period. Behind the production of this and other such plays was often the theatrical manager Francis Weens. Though his name, W-E-M-Y-S-S, -S, looks like it should be said as Wemis, by the way, it should properly be pronounced Weems, as it is in his native Scotland, so that's what I'm going to do from now on. Weems came to Philadelphia in 1824 and was well known for his elegant style of dress, always in the latest London fashions. His striking clothes, in fact, had led to him being immediately employed by Warren and Wood's Chestnut Street Company. He was hired to star in a series of Tom and Jerry plays, which purportedly showed the amusing life of Tom and Jerry and other young London gents as they went through aristocratic clubs and slummed it in the dives of the lower classes of London. Weems was to become a fixture in Philadelphia theater in the years afterwards, and eventually he turned to management as well, though he occasionally managed theaters as far away as Baltimore, New York, and Pittsburgh. Usually Weems would take over the operations of Philadelphia's Walnut, National, and Arch Street theaters. These three houses were the popular places of entertainment for the working class and the artisan classes of Philadelphia. Their programming 
was usually in stark opposition to the refined and high-class operas, ballets, and plays being put on at the Chestnut Street Theatre, which was favoured by the upper classes. In 1841, the publication The Dramatic Mirror reported that, quote, Oh, the chestnut has a distinct audience from the walnut. The one don't go to the others. Always attuned, therefore, to popular taste, Weems particularly excelled at staging these exciting disaster spectacles in which exploding volcanoes or collapsing buildings would be featured, or melodramas that expressed the dark underside of city life would be shown. These sort of entertainments were rather an inverse of the good-natured Tom and Jerry plays that he had begun his career with. Instead of showing colorful and jolly times in urban nightlife, these melodramas revealed a city's supposed secrets and its moral corruption. In October 1843, for example, Weems staged at the National Theater a melodramatic version of the French playwright's Eugene Sue's S-U-E, The Mystery of Paris. As theater historian Charles Durang described this piece, it was full of gothic scenic effects. Quote, Thunder roared, lightning flashed, and mock human blood flowed in the kennels. By a curious device, the moon's rays were made at night to reflect the blood of humanity, mantling the waters of the Seine. The multitude gaped at it in wonder. Close quotes. Even Charlotte Cushman, in her one season of managing the Walnut Street Theater in that time, had not been above staging such popular pieces. That same month, October of 1843, she had appeared in the romantic spectacle entitled The Last Days of Pompeii, a classic exploding volcano play, if there ever was one, along with her younger sister, Susan. To top it all off, there were actual crimes being committed throughout the city of Philadelphia that disturbed the public's peace of mind in this era. Not only was there increasing street-level gang violence, often tied to the fierce rivalries of Philadelphia's famous volunteer fire companies, but there were crimes in the upper levels of society, too. In February of 1843, a socially prominent young man about town, Malin, M-A-H-L-O-N, Hutchinson, Heberton, son of the late Dr. John C. Heberton, was violently murdered. Young Heberton had been a real sport, a denizen of the city's billiard halls, social clubs, and drinking establishments. The newspaper, The Spirit of the Times, described him as the, quote, rather tall, extremely well-formed, remarkably full of chest, always dressed in the extreme of fashion, corseted, padded, etc., to a nicety, dark hair and brilliant and rakish eye, wore a mustache and carried a gold-headed cane, close quotes. One evening, Malin Heberton had secretly taken 16-year-old Sarah Mercer, the trusting and socially inexperienced daughter of a wealthy South Philadelphia merchant to a house of assignation, and the two had had sex. He had either raped or seduced her. 
The girl, at any rate, was missing for days, and her frantic family, hearing rumors of his involvement in this matter, had Heberton arrested. But the young man arrogantly denied all knowledge of the girl's whereabouts, and he was eventually released. Finally, Sarah turned up, and when her older brother, Singleton Mercer, who had been desperately searching the city for her and begging Mullen Heberton to give the whereabouts of her location, found out what had happened first. He threatened to kill his sister. And when he was prevented from doing that, Singleton made it widely known that he would kill her assailant, Mullen Heberton, instead. Heberton, hearing of these threats, wisely decided to skip town and quietly had himself and his luggage loaded onto a heavily curtained carriage, which drove to the Philadelphia riverfront and rolled onto the John Fitch, a ferryboat that took passengers across the Delaware River to Camden, New Jersey. But, unknown to Heberton, Singleton Mercer had tailed him onto the boat, and at an opportune moment, Singleton stuck a pistol into the carriage window and fired, killing Mullen Heberton almost immediately. Mercer surrendered to the New Jersey authorities when the boat landed, but when his trial was held a few months later, his sister's public testimony about the motivation for his actions sunk the prosecution's case. In a torrent of tears, Sarah Mercer related the distressing details of how Heberton had met her and wooed her and then led her to a strange house where a Negro woman had directed them to a room which held only a bed. According to her at this point, he had raped her at gunpoint. Well, the jury took less than half an hour to acquit Singleton Mercer, and upon his return to Philadelphia, he was hailed as a hero. Soon, Singleton was walking the streets of Philadelphia once again, now nearly as prominent a social figure in the bars, billiard halls, and theaters of Philadelphia as Mullen Heberton had been before him. Some of the local papers joined in the chorus of voices praising Singleton Mercer, but others, including a young journalist, a tense young man with long back-swept hair, named George Lepard, who had covered the trial for a paper called The Citizen Soldier, thought that the whole affair had revealed the depths of depravity that could be found beneath the veneer of supposedly polite society in the Quaker City, and he intended to rip the lid off that veneer. So, into this entire roiling cultural, political, and social climate that we've been discussing stepped one of the most remarkable historical figures ever produced by Philadelphia, to my mind. Who was this George Lepard? And what does he have to do, by the way, with the history of the theater? Well, here, in proper serial form, which Lepard would approve of, we will leave you in suspense. I'm Peter Schmitz, and our theme music and sound engineering is by Christopher Mark Colucci. Be sure to tune in next time when we bring you part two of the Quaker City, The Forbidden Play of 1844, here on Adventures in Theater History, Philadelphia. Philadelphia.